Up next is Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Pete's Ponderings is a selection of Pete's candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis, taken from his show, Afternoons. Listen to the live broadcast of Peter Williams' Afternoon Show at 1pm, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Well, here we are on another four-day week. Gee, only another five weeks until we get another public holiday and have another four-day week. Isn't productivity in New Zealand a wonderful thing? Did you pay much attention, though, to the King's Birthday Honours list? To be honest, honours leave me pretty cold. In the main, it's people being honoured for just doing their job. I suppose Jacinda Ardern had to be damned because, after all, all former Prime Ministers are offered the Sir or Dame title. Most of them take it, but the count of those who didn't in my lifetime is, I think, four, Longy, Moore, Bolger and Clark. Three of them were Labour. Bolger is the only gnat to say no, but... All of them, all of those four, went to the Order of New Zealand, which is actually above sirs and dames anyway. But does an honour or a title really matter in the grand scheme of things? The way they are used to carry favour with political allies these days means there is less and less respect for them, I believe, from the general public. And when Nikki Hager gets one, you really wonder about the honours system credibility. I mean, he was described as a journalist. No, he's not. A real journalist presents both sides of the story. He's an activist author who never gives his targets a chance to reply to the accusations. But if and when the Nats and Act get back into government, they will no doubt give their mates a few gongs as well. And that's why the honours system has this real credibility issue. Well, who knew that the hardcore left-winger and union organiser Michael Wood, until yesterday, the Minister of Transport, was at heart a dirty little capitalist. Or rather, he must have been for at least a few days back in the late 1990s when there were two big share market floats that he took part in, Auckland Airport and Contact Energy. To be honest, I can't blame him. The airport shares were in hot demand when they floated 25 years ago with the minimum investment uh, $1,000. Wood sounds like he bought the minimum on the day that they were available in, uh, in June of 1998, or was it July of 1998, and he's held them ever since. Hence their $13,000 value today, quite a good return. I don't know why he couldn't have declared them in his pecuniary interests register in recent times at Parliament. I mean, it's not exactly a big deal. Uh, maybe he was embarrassed letting his socialist mates know that he'd once been a share market investor, if only briefly. But he was told by the Cabinet Office six times to sell them when he became the Transport Minister because of this perceived conflict of interest. That's understandable. He should have cashed them up, but he didn't. The problem is that buying and selling shares these days is a complete pain because of all the compliance required. There would have been forms to fill in and ID to provide, and it's time-consuming. I know, I've been through it. So I believe him when he says he didn't get around to it. However, it sounds like he told quite a porky by saying to the Cabinet Office that he had sold the shares when, in fact, he hadn't. And that is a problem. I doubt that he'll be back in the transport job. He's still the Minister of Immigration. 
and he's still the Minister for Auckland, which in light of the shares at the Auckland airport is a conflict of interest too, is it not? But as the man who talked about the river of filth at the protest last year, I have to say that I am far from unhappy that he is in the filth himself now. Good luck, Mr. Wood. You are going to need it. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Well, I see the government is now going to try and reduce the amount of vaping in the country. But, you know, I fear the horse has bolted. All the moves announced yesterday, like banning the disposable vapes, not allowing new vape shops near schools, and enforcing generic flavours on consumers like berry instead of the seductive descriptive ones like strawberry jelly donut, are all very well, but will they actually make a difference? Maybe, but it will be slow progress. The current vape shops will continue to trade, even those next to a school. You know, if the government is serious about reducing vaping, it's got to do what it did with tobacco, price it out of existence. The figures out last year show only 8% of New Zealanders smoke tobacco these days. Unbelievably low, isn't it? 8%. But nearly 10% of just 14-year-olds vape. So smoking tobacco is seriously uncool. It's also vastly expensive. A pack of 20 cigarettes these days costs about $35 and lasts about, what, a day or two? Some disposable vapes cost under $5 and can last the same amount of time. It's an unfair contest. If the government wants less vaping, start taxing it. Even if it means breaking their election promise of no new taxes, I reckon throwing a decent chunk of vaping excise tax on would actually be a very popular move. Parents of vaping kids especially would love it because many are at their wits' end. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Now here is a story that you will not see reported in this country. Scientists from Johns Hopkins University in the US and Lund University in Sweden have found that COVID lockdowns were, quote, a policy failure of gigantic proportions. Johns Hopkins said the deaths saved in lockdown were a drop in the bucket compared to the staggering collateral costs imposed. This was the front page story in the British Daily Telegraph yesterday. Did you see it reported here? No, I didn't either. The paper has also revealed a secret British government unit working with social media companies during the pandemic in an attempt to curtail criticism of lockdown policies. It was called the COVID Disinformation Unit. The same thing happened in the US and in Australia. And I would bet a lot of money the same thing happened in this country. But back to this report, this study on lockdowns. It's actually a meta-study of 20,000 studies on measures taken to protect populations from COVID across the world, including in New Zealand. Co-author Lars Yonang from Lund University, which is ranked as one of the world's top 100 universities, by the way, he says lockdowns were a failed promise. They had negligible health effects, but disastrous economic, social and political costs to society. Most likely, he says, lockdowns represent 
the biggest policy mistake of modern times. Wow. Wow and wow. And this report was published in the British Daily Telegraph on the same day, Monday of this week, that Jacinda Ardern was made a dame. The single source of truth, I think, has just come crashing down. So a flight was held up at Christchurch Airport yesterday because passengers couldn't get through security in time for the plane to take off as scheduled. How often does that happen, I wonder? Auckland, Wellington and Christchurch airports especially are bad at security clearing quickly. But why do we bother with security for such short domestic flights in this country? Apparently we don't security screen on the regional flights because those propeller planes can't be hijacked as they can't fly to another country. That's why the jets on the main trunk are the only ones screened for domestic travel. But to my knowledge, no one has ever been apprehended as a consequence of what happens at aviation security. The only hint of trouble on a domestic flight in recent years in this country was that disturbed Somalian woman who caused trouble on a flight from Blenheim to Christchurch, and that was back in 2008. Ironically, of course, it was a regional flight, so there was no security check before the plane took off. She was sent to jail for nine years, but a pilot was stabbed in the incident. So one incident in the 20-something years since we've been screening domestic passengers after 9-11 in New York and in the United States. Remember the good old days of the last century when we just showed up at the airport and got on the plane? Wouldn't it be great to have them back? Either that, or we need a lot more staff at aviation security to speed things up so that people don't miss flights. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Now, many is the sport which has split with the so-called Rebel League being formed because a bunch of players were disenchanted or felt disenfranchised. I guess we first saw it 45 years ago with cricket when Kerry Packer bought off many of the world's best. They were back together two years later. Kerry Packer won. Money won. Then in Rugby League, we saw the big split with the Super League in the mid-1990s. That was driven by the Rupert Murdoch empire. Rupert Murdoch won. Money won. Now, in golf, the Saudis bought many of the world's best players and the game split. Now it's back together. The Saudis won. Money won. You see, there's a pattern there, isn't there? Money always wins. Yes, this money is from an immoral regime, but that same immoral regime has been supporting many sports in recent years because it can and because it wants to. Frankly, when your money supply is limitless, like the Saudis is because of all that black gooey stuff in the sand that the world needs, you need something to spend the money on. And when it comes to stroking egos and having a good time, for many men, nothing beats owning a sports team or two, or now in the case of professional golf, owning an entire sport. The money on offer for these young men now is on the verge of becoming, frankly, super obscene, as if $20 million for a four-day tournament, which some events offer at the moment already, is not enough. I can see one looming problem, though. Golf is played on some very big properties. Lots of real estate is involved. Just Stop Oil protesters 
are gathering strength. I think the golf course security industry is about to get a very big boost as well. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. This is Reality Check Radio, RCR, some correspondence which has come into inbox at realitycheck.radio or via text at 2057. This from Andrew. Peter, I have a young daughter, uh, 28. Young daughter, Andrew? Well, that's all relative, I suppose. She's fully qualified and experienced as an ED nurse. Why can't those like her have some significant time taken off a medical degree? That would speed things up, save money, and my daughter tells me she helps young doctors understand situations every day. Loving RCR. Thank you, Andrew. You will know the medical profession is very protective of its own and is in many respects a closed shop. Uh, What your daughter would like to do probably makes sense, but will never happen because of the situations I've just explained. Uh, Then I think this is also from Andrew. This girl got sick of being tapped out, doing crazy shifts and the pay. She's been travelling around Australia on short-term contracts for more than a year now. She gets paid a base rate of $80 per hour, free accommodation, flights home every 12 weeks, cost between jobs, is appreciated wherever she goes, and banks more than double what she grossed at home, and she doesn't have to pay to park her car for work. Yes, it is part of the ongoing situation with the health workforce. Thank you for that, Andrew. Now, in response to the Barry Brill interview we had on last Friday, uh, this uh, texter writes, so if the methane effect is three to four times lower, then in effect we have reduced our animal population by the same amount. That should take care of any proposed reduction. Let's move on, shall we? Uh, I would like to. We should, but we won't. Uh, Then on the same matter, this is from Vaughan. He writes, just listening to Peter Williams on Friday the 2nd of June about climate change and how methane has been overstated considerably. What are the chances of James Shaw and or Chris Hipkins being interviewed on Peter's show and confronting them in public with this information? Uh, Vaughan, we have tried. They don't want to know about it. And then uh, this one has come in from Bruce at Tyree, uh, Tyree Beach. Uh, Re Barry Brill's excellent talk on the new data re-methane gas. It seems to me that if the government don't act on this new information from the IPCC and adjust their policies to mitigate the conditions that they are applicable to our farmers, then they will be seen to be corrupt and incapable of acting honestly. So must be punished at the ballot box. Bruce from Tyree Beach, I could not agree more. It is so logical what Barry Brill was saying late last week, and the numbers are there from the IPCC, no less. As he writes, those numbers in the world of climate science are infallible. They have papal infallibility. And the fact that methane has been overstated by three to four times should mean a really, really significant change in policy for farm emissions, for agricultural emissions in this country. It's disgraceful, despicable, and in many respects just so wrong that it is not happening. Thank you for your feedback. Uh, Inbox at realitycheck.radio. My text is 2057. 
Now, you don't often hear of a political party charging for admission to its annual conference, but that's what the ACT Party did over this past weekend, and it seemed to work an absolute treat. There was a sellout crowd of over 600 paying 50 bucks each. That's a good way to put $30,000 in the party coffers. The reports on the conference were very positive from the news media, even if they didn't stay up online for long. The party caucus seems very united and disciplined, which is obvious from the complete lack of wayward MPs, which seem to be a feature of National, Labour and the Greens. Uh, All their ideas about health, education, crime and the public service seem very, very sound, although I have to say creating a new Ministry of Regulations seems a touch Monty Python-esque in an era of expanding public service. Why couldn't ACT just set up an office in an existing ministry to do this reviewing of the regulation stuff? What I do like, though, is ACT's ambition. They want to be a third of any new government and apply some serious heat in the coalition negotiations, if they can. That's in the future. In the next five months, I see ACT growing in popularity, mainly on the back of their leader, who still appeals as the best politician in the country. Gee, the National Party could certainly do with someone of his capability and presence. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Now, we've heard reports in recent days about this horrific train crash in India, where it looks like around 300 people have been killed after a signal failure and a passenger train hit another one. But this past Sunday over King's birthday weekend, June the 4th, it was the 80th anniversary of one of New Zealand's worst train disasters. It happened at Hyde in central Otago. 21 people were killed when a train with 121 passengers on board left the track as it was travelling too fast. The driver, John Corcoran, was sent to jail amid allegations he was drunk at the wheel of the engine. But the author of a book about the tragedy believes Corcoran was unfairly blamed because he had a tight and unrealistic timetable to meet and he was driving on poorly maintained tracks. Elizabeth Coleman wrote a book on the crash in which her father and her brother were killed 80 years ago. Now these days you can ride your bike past the site of the crash on the Otago Rail Trail cycle track and stop at the Memorial Cairn which Elizabeth Coleman was a driving force in having put up about 30 years ago. A couple of things about this crash though. Number one, there were 121 people on board the train. Such was the popularity of rail passenger travel back in the 1940s. And two, a man was held responsible for the crash and was convicted. That never happens these days as the families of the Pike River and CTV building victims know only so painfully well. John Corcoran may or may not have been badly treated, but at least the families of the victims saw justice done. And we just don't see that happen these days in New Zealand. 
Now, if you want an example of how the crims have taken over the place, look no further than the lead story on News Hub on, when was it, Monday night. A group of smart asses on dirt bikes hooning around the roads of Otara in South Auckland and around a park with no helmets on and on bikes not registered to be on the roads. The cops were there, but they were outnumbered. It looks like most of the bikers got away. I think about 10% of them have been arrested. The boss of the police operation out there says Aucklanders have had a guts full of this stuff, but then he said, we're trying our best to stop it. And some of the attempts to catch these guys were farcical. Uh, One of the cops was seen showing his baton at a bikey. Really? Uh, What was obvious was that the cops were outnumbered. That's why we need more police in uniform on the street and on the beat. And while the government crows on about reaching 1,800 new cops, which was a promise actually made back in the days when Winston Peters was the Deputy Prime Minister, the reality is we still need about 2,000 more sworn and uniformed cops. New Zealand's total number of sworn police is about 10,500, one to just under 500 of population. In Australia, that ratio is one to 400. That's where we need to be. If law and order and crime is going to become a big deal this election, and it should be, another huge recruitment drive for cops is absolutely needed. Now, as we read stories almost daily about the problems at our universities, we should be thankful to Stephen Joyce as a former Minister of Finance and Tertiary Education to put a few things in perspective, as he did. Yes, Stephen Joyce is from the other side of the political fence, but all he was doing in his column in the Herald on Saturday was to point out a few of the facts of financial life for the universities, which are entirely the government's fault. The reality is, you see, that in six years of being in government, Labour has presided over a decline in their funding of the universities. In 2021 and 2022, the annual budget increase was well below the rate of inflation, and there was no contribution from the government to make up the funding shortfall from the decline in international student numbers, which of course was a decline brought about by government policy during covid The Tertiary Education Union, many of whose members face redundancy unless there's a massive turnaround in financial fortunes, is so close to the Labour Party that it won't point out the bleeding obvious. Meanwhile, the merged Polytech, which is a favourite project of the Prime Minister from his days as the Education Minister, has had over $400 million put its way, and it continues to be an unmitigated disaster. As Stephen Joyce points out, The government is run by former student politicians in Hipkins and Grant Robertson. You'd think they would appreciate the value of universities, but it would appear not. This is RCR. Thank you for your company this afternoon, and I look forward to talking with you again on Friday. You've been listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Remember, you can catch Pete's full show combining smooth sounds and candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis and the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on our live broadcasts 1pm Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays right here on RCR Reality Check Radio. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. 
So get in touch with us now. 